over the course of our lives, we may notice that we have some deeply ingrained habits of mind. These habits often add a flavor, particular flavor, to our personalities. And as we sit in meditation, we may find that we become uh, more and more familiar with these grooves that the mind goes into, these habitual ways of responding to experience. And we probably at times notice that these patterns repeat themselves over and over again. It may be that uh, we notice that there's a great addiction to pleasant experience, where we over and over again find ourselves trying to manipulate experience to have the most pleasant experience possible. For example, when we walk into the meditation hall, we might look to see where the lighting is best or where the air is best, what will give us the best view. We look at what are the most favorable conditions that will enable us to experience pleasant states. Or we may walk into a room and we may notice everything that's wrong with it. We might notice that the room's too stuffy or too cold, or the rows in the hall are crooked, or there's tall people sitting at the front blocking the view. Uh, We might notice right away if somebody has perfume on. Or as we sit with our experience, we might notice that um, as experience arises, there tends to be an aversive response to even the most simple experiences. Or it may be that when we walk into a room, we feel a little bit bewildered. We're not quite sure what to do. So we look around to see what others are doing so that we can do the same thing. We all have our own versions of these idiosyncrasies. um, But many of these patterns distill down to the roots of greed aversion, and delusion. And in the path of purification, or the Vasudhimagga, that uh, was put together by Buddha Gosa, it's a commentary on the practices that the Buddha taught. He outlines different personality types that are related to the habituated responses in the mind. In uh, the Vasudhimagga itself, there are a number of different categories for temperaments, but they can, um, in a simple form, be broken down into three personality types, that of greed, aversion, and delusion. So tonight I'd like to speak about these three temperaments uh, that we probably fall into, and in our own experience, it it can be that, you know, it's not just that we only experience greed states of mind or aversive states of mind or deluded states, that we will experience all of these, but it's not uncommon that one of these will be predominant, and we will experience more of that state than the others. 
in speaking of them, I think it's also worthwhile to note that um, there can also be a prominence of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, where uh, the, the unwholesome states have been purified and become wholesome states of mind. And whether we're experiencing a predominance of either the wholesome or unwholesome is really dependent upon the karmic unfolding. Each of these different types is really uh, based in delusion itself because they're all based upon not seeing clearly and seeking happiness in misguided ways. For example, when there's predominance of greed, we're seeking happiness through the fulfillment that we experience through going for pleasurable objects. And this in itself is not fulfilling, does not lead to deep happiness. But out of not seeing clearly, this is what we do. So the greed type tends to pay attention to pleasant experience and gloss over unpleasant experience. There can be a sense of, at times, of just reveling in the pleasant. I was once going for a walk with a friend of mine who says that she is a greed type. And on that walk, at one point, she says, oh, it's such a beautiful day, and I just want to enjoy it even more. You know, it's that, that real pull into greed, into pleasant, and letting our lives, when we're not seeing it clearly, be run by this, so that we do keep seeking out what are the most favorable conditions in life. And in this way, it's as if greed becomes the master. We give ourselves over to the objects of greed, thinking that that is where happiness can be found. And as a result, there's a lot of clinging or grasping after pleasant experience and a turning away from that which is unpleasant or painful. There's also a strong sense of trying to make permanent these pleasant states, trying to keep ourselves secure in this pleasantness. For the aversive type, there is the not wanting of experience to be the way that it is. And so as a result, there's this sense of pulling away from experience, standing separate from experience. Often with aversion, there can also be the sense of striking out at experience as if we can annihilate or get rid of. You know, and it's a sense of trying to take control of our experience and that if we can just get rid of this, then things will be okay. With aversion, it can also uh, take the form of fear, where we're pulling back, recoiling from experience. 
It's the same energy of the aversion that's striking out, but instead of going outward, it's turning inward. Aversive types have a tendency to immediately notice problems or immediately notice what isn't in harmony in the environment. The um, portrayal of the aversive type, whether if it's the striking out uh, type of aversion, can appear quite different to the person who experiences it more as fear. Um, the aversive type might be quite vocal in the scene of that which uh, seems wrong, misplaced, uh, that which one wants to get rid of, where the fearful person might be quite quiet and uh, just has this tendency when in new situations to pull back from experience. Then the deluded type is a person who experiences a lot of confusion, bewilderment. Sometimes it's experienced as dullness. Uh, It can be a person who uh, never seems to quite know what's going on. And sometimes they can appear quite equanimous uh, because in, in the bewilderment, it's like things just don't seem to phase one the same way. And it can have this sense of equanimity, but it's really uh, not the equanimity of deep connection, but rather an equanimity of disconnection or not knowing. All three of these types are based in delusion because they're based in not seeing clearly. But the deluded type is not either um, grasping that experience nor pushing it away. And in the Abhidhamma, it's actually described as sheer delusion. So in our experience, we may notice one of these tendencies to be stronger than the others. Uh, and sometimes there's one that's a close second. And you know, in my own experience, I've come to call that the rising sign, um, where you know, maybe predominant, I happen to be the deluded type. So uh, a lot of times, you know, living in a world of bewilderment. But then you know, there also is the tendency to really want pleasant experience. And so you know, it tends to be my rising sign. Uh, what's kind of lurking in the background or waiting to to come up at any moment. I wanted to talk about this because I have a very strong memory uh, when I was sitting in a retreat once and Sharon gave a talk on uh, delusion, being a deluded type. And it was, for me, really quite transformative almost life-changing. It was where I discovered that I was a deluded type. And what it helped me to see what these are, is that these are just energetic patterns, habituated responses that we may have, and that they're very impersonal in nature. And this helped me to disidentify with the ways that I commonly meet experience. It helps us to see into their insubstantial nature. And in doing so, we can just learn to recognize these tendencies and to really use 
this, our own experience, what's happening now, is the vehicle for liberation. By bringing mindfulness to this experience, by developing a wise relationship with this experience. And in learning to see that they're just conditioned habits of response, means that when we do bring mindfulness, we bring the element of deconditioning these habits. We learn to see, to see clearly how these habits aren't serving us, aren't bringing us closer to freedom and liberation. And in the seeing of the pain of these habits, we can begin to let go. And when we pay attention, these habits no longer drive us or propel us in life. Learning about these three personality types also helped me in relating with others. To know in a moment of responsiveness, another person may fall into their habituated response. And, you know, I found this especially helpful in working with or relating to aversive types. Because often when you ask an aversive type to do something or ask them for something, their immediate response may be no. And it might come with quite a force. But in learning to recognize this, what I found was often uh, if you give that person the moment, they'll come out of that pattern. They'll come into a place of balance. And then if, you're, if I'm not you know, kind of reacting to their aversion, there's the space for them to find that place of wisdom, find that balance, that true response to the question. One aspect in learning about these three personality types is to really learn or to watch that we use this information wisely to help us understand this karmic lump and not to hold on to it in a way that further solidifies a sense of self, a self-view. There's ways in which you know, we can unskillfully hear of these personality types and cause harm to ourselves or others. You know, one, one example um, I've noticed you know, being a deluded type is that there, there was once a time where uh, someone was going to make a decision that would have an effect on me. And then they kind of, in an offhanded way, said, oh, they, they didn't want to ask my opinion because they said, oh, you're just a deluded type. Deluded types don't have preferences. You know, so it doesn't matter. And, and you know, it felt very belittling. And uh, it's, it's a way in which, you know, if we hold someone as an aversive type, you can be holding someone in a way that you're not allowing them to grow, not allowing them to respond differently, but holding them to a habituated pattern. And, you know, I noticed in myself how I could use it harmfully uh, in relating to myself was uh, in, you know, sometimes I can think of a deluded type as being uh, stupid. And 
And so then, you know, when I do something that seems kind of stupid, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you're just deluded. That's why you do that. And it hurts. You know, it's painful. And it's not helpful. So really noticing, you know, as I speak about these, you know, often people will start trying to sort through what type they are to do it skillfully. You know, I'm speaking about them tonight also because they, they just relate to these states of greed, aversion, and delusion. And we will experience these in many different ways in our practice. A lot of you have just arrived and will be going through the hindrances. And these really relate strongly to the hindrances. So they're just really mind states. And can we see them just as mind states? Can we notice if there's a tendency? But looking at it in a way of depersonalizing rather than personalizing. So in coming to recognize temperaments, the Fustudi Maga says that we can come to know these through looking to our posture, our actions, actually how we eat, and the kind of mental states that tend to reoccur. The Vasudhi Maga uh, lists um, descriptions for each type, and I've done some adaptations. I'm going to share with you tonight some ad- adaptations that I've come up with that relate to uh, life at IMS, not just the forced refuge, but over at the retreat center. Um, And the first part of it kind of directly relates more to a yogi arriving at the retreat center. And I stayed with that example because I think there tends to be more variables over there. And it's probably newer for us arriving at uh, the forced refuge, and we probably haven't figured out how to manipulate our experience quite as well yet. But some of you who have done a lot of practice over at the retreat center may be able to relate to uh, what it's like arriving over there. So on arrival at the meditation center, one of greedy temperament has already called the center to request the room that they perceive is the most favorably placed, i.e. Has the quiet, is the quietest, has the best light, and the best proximity. On arrival at the center, they go straight to the meditation hall to put their cushion down in the most favorable spot. This is soon followed up by registering as quick as possible to get the yogi job of their choice. On arrival in their room, they immediately move the furniture to have the most aesthetically pleasing sense. Noticing that the room across the hall has a better chair, they quickly swap it. The aversive type on arriving at the meditation center looks at the new flooring in the front foyer and finds fault with it. As they proceed to the registration desk, they notice that this room is still its same ugly self with paint chipping and drab flooring. As they register and are assigned a yogi job, they are forthright in why they can't do it. On arriving in their room, they immediately notice the distant sound of a flushing toilet and quickly return to the office to see if a room change is possible. The deluded type arrives at the meditation center and promptly parks in the staff parking, not noticing the sign for retreat parking. As they venture into the building, they have a slight smile on their face, but but the look in their eyes is of that of one who is lost. 
They are easy to please with their yogi job and are likely to end up with a yogi job that is not suitable for their physical limitations that they have, but it just didn't seem like it mattered. It takes them time to find their room as they study the map that makes no sense at all. Finally, someone notices their confusion and takes them to their room. And I have to say that that was actually a personal experience. <laughs> when they discover they have a roommate, they are let, ready to let the other one have their choice of which bed to have, unless, of course, it's another deluded type, and then they may spend hours trying to decide who should get what bed. In dressing for meditation, the three temperaments are also distinguishable. The greedy type arrives in the hall with the latest stretch fabrics that always leave one looking elegant, color-coordinated, and the socks are no exception. They have the latest slip-on shoes and a jacket for every occasion. They leave their shoes in the cloakroom in the same spot every day, and it is the spot that allows them quick exit and entry. The aversive type arrives in the hall with an outfit that never calls attention or provokes judgment from another. The only evidence of their aversion is the shirt or blouse that has hurriedly been tucked in. They kick off their shoes as they enter the coat room. The deluded type arrives in the hall with an unmatching sweatsuit, hair all awry. Their clothes are layered in a way that makes them look like a patchwork quilt. In leaving the hall, they hover in the coat room, looking for where they may have placed their shoes. In walking meditation, the greed type appears to glide across the room, each step carefully placed. The aversive type hastily plows their toes into the ground with each step, as the sound of their steps boom across the walking room. The deluded type almost trips with each step, and looks unsure as where to place the next step. In lining up in the dining hall, the greed type just happens to be at the front of the queue, day after day, and they stand with a poised ease. The aversive type is right behind them and drumming their fingers and restlessly shifting from foot to foot. The deluded type follows along behind, watching what utensils others pick up, so they will know what to do. In yogi jobs of wiping tables, the greed type carefully wipes the table with strokes that are long and smooth, creating a beautiful even pattern of wetness. The aversive type clutches the sponge as they hurriedly wipe across the table with an audible huff. People automatically move out of their way. The deluded type sees one dirty spot and then another, and therefore wipes in an erratic manner, leaving pools of water behind. In seeing impermanence, the greed type sees it as just another opportunity. The next experience might be even more pleasant. The aversive type in, in seeing impermanence experiences fear and anxiety and wants to control it. And the deluded type knows that something's changing, but they're not quite sure what. In discussing the types, the greed type thinks that they have the most fun, and at times they, see the mo they seem the most prideful of their type, or they have a tendency to glorify it. 
Sometimes they even refer to themselves as the sensual type. The aversive type thinks that they have the hardest and that they may even be the worst ones. And deep down, that they, they might feel that they're somehow responsible or to blame, although their actions often appear as if you are to blame. The deluded type is the person that's sitting here that doesn't really know which one they are until someone points it out and then it takes a long time before they really rest with this. So these are just some of the tendencies of these types. And I'd like to just touch briefly upon uh, just the states of each type. So looking at greed, you know, this is where there is the experience of desire or craving, where we're clinging to pleasant experience. You know, we can experience this through any of the sense doors, um, you know, coming in contact with beautiful sights, sounds, smells, uh, wonderful thoughts, or the wanting in our practice of really deep, beautiful mind states. And we experience this, all of us, over and over in our practice. You know, just noticing how, many, how prevalent greed can be in our experience. There's a couple of similes that the Buddha used to describe the state of desire. And one is that of a person being in debt. When uh, we're in debt, it's like there's a bondage. And so when we're in debt with desire, it's like there's a bondage to the objects of our desire. Another simile that the Buddha used is of someone looking into a beautiful spring. But because there are so many uh, bright colors in the water, one cannot see into the depths of the spring. One cannot see clearly one's reflection. And we find with desire that we get so enchanted by this state of desire, mesmerized by desire, mesmerized by pleasant experience. There's a a quote from Winnie the Pooh that I really love in speaking about desire because he just said it very well. He said, although eating honey is a very good thing to do, there's a moment before you eat it that is actually even better than when you do. And, you know, that's, that's the state of desire where there's that enchantment And so, whether we're a greedy type or whether we're just experiencing greed, it's learning to recognize this enchantment with these sense objects that come through the sense doors. And it's so worthwhile in our lives to learn to work with greed because it keeps us on the run. It keeps us moving. It's so prevalent in our culture. And, you know, at the ends of retreats, at long retreats, when we go back out into the world, it's really a time where we can 
notice how strong that tendency is in the world and how much our culture feeds it. You know, when we see all the advertising of the world. And, you know, I had one experience once when I'd been in Burma for a few months and then I came back. And the next weekend I was teaching in New York City and I was staying in the center of New York City. And I just couldn't believe what was going on around me. You know, there, there was something to appeal to any sense, you know, of the sense doors. And it went on all through the night, and I just had this sense of people being hungry ghosts and just chasing after desire, after desire, after desire. And that's what life is like when we keep following that habituated mind state. <coughs> And, you know, it can come right into our practice where, you know, one of a greedy temperament or where there's just a lot of craving, wanting in our practice. It's like we want to just be on the top of the mountain. And, you know, we go for really deep, clear concentration because we want it to be pleasant. Uh, We have a tendency to want to push away that unpleasant. We don't want to go near it. And so it's really helpful to learn to recognize when this is what's fueling our practice, when it's fueled by craving, craving for pleasant states, rather than the looking to our experience just as it is. We might experience it strongly just as we sit down on the cushion, trying to get everything perfect, trying to get the perfect posture, (coughs) trying to get the perfect temperature for the body. You know, first we put on a shawl, then we take it off, we put socks on, we take them off. And then we might uh, try and just, we start fidgeting a lot to try and keep that sense of pleasure. And yet, you know, everything is subject to change. It's such a futile way to seek happiness. And when we pay attention, we begin to see this. It takes us into the scene of impermanence. It's said in the Visuddhimagga that one of a greedy temperament experiences a lot of deceit, fraud, pride, evilness of wishes, greatness of wishes, discontent, foppery, and personal vanity. These, we all, we learn to pay attention to all of these mind states, just mind states, just tendencies of mind. And we wake up to the pain of attachment, the pain of craving, clinging, wanting to hold on to the pleasant. And each of the types can transform into wholesome qualities. Greed can transform into faith. And this is because with um, greed, there's this willingness to, to, there's a kind of a vitality, a willingness to come close to life. And when we begin to see clearly, instead of trying to hang on to that which is unreliable, we learn to cherish that which is reliable. 
We find it that which is trustworthy. When greed is transformed into faith, there can be experiences of states of generosity, desire to see noble ones, desire to hear the Dhamma, a great gladness, honesty, and a trust in things that inspire trust. So remembering that this greed can transform into faith. And during the time of the Buddha, it says, said that he would uh, give meditations according to people's tendencies of mind. And, you know, this is to help balance those tendencies. Always, you know, with the state of greed, we can use mindfulness as a way of seeing clearly, seeing into the impermanence of this mind state, seeing into the unsatisfactoriness, seeing into the insubstantial nature of these mind states. And if we find that we get stuck in this greed, then uh, we can work with practices that are practices of renunciation or practices of generosity that really help us to learn to let go. It can also be helpful if greed is predominant in our experience to at times reflect upon impermanence. That which we are so desperately seeking is in itself subject to impermanence. So greed being the first type. Aversion, the second. So aversion can be experienced in the form of hatred, anger, ill will. Sometimes it can be very strong, or at times it's just very subtle, uh, just a slight distancing from experience. Usually when aversion is present, it's easy to see uh, um, because the suffering in it is quite evident. It has a way of showing us where we are stuck, where we are hanging on. In our practice here, there's many different ways we will experience aversion. You know, aversion to, we can become aversive just to the way the breath is. You know, it can seem too short, too long, choppy. You know, uh, we don't like the way the breath is, or we become aversive to the sounds around us, to people in the room. Um, We become aversive to mind states that arise, and all the time thinking that we need to get rid, uh, annihilate, this experience. Within a simile that the Buddha had for aversion, he likened it to looking in the same spring of water and not being able to see into it because the water is frothing and boiling. And this is the state of the mind when aversion is present. There's an agitation that's there. Um, So as I mentioned, aversion can be experienced in you know, strong states of, of hatred, anger, uh, where there's a lot of blame, a really compelling voice to the aversion. Or it can have a quieter voice, the voice of fear, disappointment, judgment, 
boredom. These can also be ways that aversion plays out. With these, there's still that energy of pulling away from experience. It's said that the aversive type may experience a lot of states of anger, enmity, disparaging, domineering, envy, and avarice. But aversion, too, can be transformed. It can transform into wisdom. It often happens that in a moment of aversion, there can be a moment of clear seeing, but there's a reaction to that, and that is what becomes problematic. Um, The aversive types often have the capacity to say what others won't say. And when we take the aversion out of this, it has a, there is a way that then what we say is pointing towards the truth, and at times saying the truth that is difficult to say. And so it's in, there can be um, this characteristic when aversion is transformed of going from the mind that, you know, really quick, clearly and quickly sees something, but rather than reaction, reacting to it, stays with the truth of it. So aversion can transform into wisdom. And often you'll find that aversive types aren't content to stay on the surface. Um, there has been some speculation that the aversive types actually have the quicker path because the aversion, the suffering in it is so much more apparent and really can inspire one to look deeply into the suffering. It's said that for aversive types or in our experience when there's a predominance of aversive states that uh, metta or loving kindness can be very helpful. This helps to soften the mind. It helps to develop a friendly relationship with experience, with ourselves, with the world at large. It can also be that all of the Brahma Viharas are very helpful because they help us to move out of that place of feeling so separate, um, feeling the need for control, and moving into that experience of deep interconnectedness. So aversion being the second, delusion being the third, Um, Delusion in Pali comes from the word moha, which literally translated means stupefied. And we find with delusion that there's a sense of bewilderment, dullness, at times helplessness or perplexity. When delusion is strong and we're not able to see clearly, you know, we will feel quite bewildered and confused, mystified by life. It can be a sense of just bumbling through life and not really being in touch with our experience. 
as I mentioned earlier, this can at times have a sense of equanimity with it. And, you know, often the deluded type can have kind of an easygoing personality, but it, that's really happening out of disconnection rather than the true equanimity that is uh, made from deep connectedness with life. <coughs> There can also be a tendency for a deluded type to be quite spaced out. Uh, I know one time I was watching television with a friend, and uh, you know as I was following along, I think it was a news um, program, and then suddenly realized I'd missed some critical piece of the news, and so I asked my friend, you know, what what it was, and so he asked me where my mind had gone. You know, had I become lost in thought? Um, just what had I, where had my mind gone in that moment? And as soon as he said that, I knew right away that I had just simply spaced out. You know, space is quite familiar. <clears throat> when we look at this bewilderment, uh, it really does lead to an uneasiness of not knowing how things really are. And uh, a great frustration of not being able to find the ways and means to clarify. As a deluded type, I know that you know there can be uh, this bewilderment and not knowing what question I could ask that would help to clarify, and having to wait really until somebody else asks my question, which fortunately the other types seem quite good at doing. <clears throat> A friend of mine, who's also a teacher and also a deluded type, said that he thought it should be renamed the confused type because this is a very strong characteristic of this tendency. And, you know, I found shopping centers can be totally overwhelming. You know, there's just so many things to see, to buy. And, uh, you know, I can walk through a shopping center and just see endless possibilities of um, things to purchase. And, you know, never purchasing anything because always caught in this indecision, ending up totally exhausted. Uh, The benefit being it makes for cheap shopping trips. But... As we wake up to delusion, we wake up to the pain of it, to the pain of being disconnected, the pain of being bewildered, the pain of being confused. I remember, you know, one time I was, uh, it was my first time visiting Maui, and I was going to the ocean, and it was about an hour's drive to the ocean. And I was given the map, told how to get there. It was a really hot day. I was driving in a car that wasn't air-conditioned, and as I was driving along, I was totally confused, couldn't work out the map, nothing made sense. Um, finally, I arrived at the beach. I went into the changing room to get on, put on my bathing suit. I put my hand in my bag, and the next thought was, oh, there's no bathing suit. (laughs) I'd forgotten my bathing suit. And then the next thought was, sometimes it's so hard to be me. You know, it's just waking up to that pain of delusion. You know, for another way, as I commonly have experienced it, is can be driving down roads that I've been down many times before, and I still get confused. 
I still can't figure out which way to go. And, you know, because there isn't that moment-to-moment connection. Another tendency with this uh, type is that one can easily lose confidence in one's own perceptions. And this was really what kind of, to me, helped me to understand uh, how I was a deluded type and had this tendency. Because in my own life, I'd seen so many times when, you know, if I was outside, I had been outside, it was a clear, beautiful day, I come inside, maybe the curtains are drawn, and then someone comes in, and I say, oh, isn't it a beautiful day today? And they say, no, actually it's raining and cloudy outside. And then I'd probably think, oh, was that yesterday? You know, in that moment, I would trust their perception beyond my own perception, just easily losing confidence. And as a result, uh, one can experience a lot of doubt where Uh, You know, in classical teachings, doubt is described as vexation due to perplexed thinking or devoid of remedy of knowledge. Um, You know, doubt is a very painful state in itself where we tend to, again, uh, not see clearly and there's a distancing that happens and can move into endless speculation about our experience. And as you probably all are familiar, doubt is one of the hindrances. And when we're working with it in the way of a hindrance, it's you know recognizing it and then coming close to our experience rather than allowing that distance uh, where we move into skeptical doubt, where we move into the perplexed thinking about experience, where we move into the bewilderment. And this is really a key for this type, to uh, work with a practice in a way that keeps you moment to moment coming close to experience. And that's where mindfulness of breath, my, the four foundations of mindfulness, are really valuable practice for one of this temperament. <clears throat> Another aspect of delusion is that due to its bewilderment, there can be this sense of dis-ease, worrying, or fretting. It's an energy of agitation, and it can keep the mind fluttering like a leaf blowing in the wind. Uh, There becomes a restlessness of mind that is so distracted that it cannot clearly rest on any object. And as a result, it seems quite random in how things unfold. It's said that one of a deluded temperament experiences states of stiffness, torpor, agitation, worry, uncertainty, and holding on tenaciously with refusal to relinquish. 
this um, holding on to things tenaciously with a refusal to relinquish comes about because of the confusion and bewilderment that when we come in contact with something of value, there comes the tendency to want to cling to it as a refuge. And as a result, one can find one becomes more dogmatic, clinging to, you know, we could hear the teachings, and rather than investigating, we cling to um, what we're hearing, and, and instead of investigating for ourselves. But we do this, you know, out of a sense of wanting a refuge, looking for security. But delusion can transform into equanimity. The equanimity that goes from not knowing to the equanimity that comes from deep connection and the non-reactivity of the mind. Non-delusion is to see things just as they are. And this allows for the spaciousness of mind that is not reactive, that is balanced in the face of all experience. So through our practice, we discover these tendencies of mind. And really, you know, to see if we can hold them lightly see if we can just bring mindfulness to these experiences, because it is mindfulness that will help to transform these tendencies. It is what will help us to uh, have a wise relationship, even though they, these patterns may appear over and over again, to see if we can hold them lightly. And rather than getting caught up in trying to figure out which type we might be, just to simply notice what's happening in our experience. Not being hard on ourselves if there is a predominance of greed, aversion, delusion. But just noticing what our experience is. Applying mindfulness. doing so in a way that we don't move into conjecture of self, solidification of self. But allowing mindfulness to dispel the delusion. I'd like to close with a sutta that speaks of diligent mindfulness as the way to work with these tendencies. And the title itself is why I want to read it. It's called, For One's Own Sake. And I know that any time that we speak about unwholesome roots, it's very easy for us to move into moralistic judgments that can cause rebellion, aversion, dismissiveness. Um, And so the sutta, kind of appeals just on a very basic level. For one's own sake. For one's own sake, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard. And this is for four reasons. May my mind not harbor lust 
for anything inducing lust. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. May my mind not harbor hatred towards anything inducing hatred. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. May my mind not harbor delusion concerning anything inducing delusion. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. May my mind not be infatuated by anything inducing infatuation. For this reason, should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. And as we discover through our practice, it's not just for one's own sake, but because of the truth of interconnectedness, it's for the sake of all beings. It's mindfulness that will help us to uproot the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. And when these forces are uprooted, we can see things just as they are. Delusion or ignorance is dispelled. So let's sit for a moment. Closing with the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings, guardians, spirits, 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.